and welcome to all of you. Thank you for coming out on a January night as the 2015-2016 Faith and Life season continues. Uh, we're very glad to have all of you here and welcome. <clears throat> One of the things I always like to ask at the outset is how many of you have not ever been to a Faith and Life event uh, up to this point? Some of you? Okay, so we have some new faces, uh, particularly glad for your presence. We're glad you're here. Um, a word about our flow tonight. You will hear from our speaker for about 45 minutes, give or take. After that, we'll have a chance for some open mic Q&A at the mic uh, to my right and to my left. So be thinking about questions you would like uh, to ask him. Uh, if you have been at some of these events in the past, you know that our goal over the last 13 years has been to cast a broad net. We've brought uh, artists, um, authors, doctors, politicians, although not a lot of politicians. <laughs> um, and I actually was just visiting with someone in the hall who is, uh, who's been to a lot of these events who said something very nice. They said, you know, even if the topic uh, didn't interest me. I think I would come just based on the high quality of speakers, and I know that tonight you are in for another treat. Um, in the 13 years of our of our uh, series, I don't believe we have ever had a poet. And uh, as I think about it, that is uh, a bit of an oversight. I've been able to spend the day with uh, our speaker tonight. Uh, it's been a ton of fun for me. I heard him give a talk at the University of Minnesota, um, which was wonderful, and I know you're going to enjoy him. You can read his biography in the program. Um, he's the author of many volumes, three of which are available uh, for sale in the Narthex, uh, that's the lobby out there, um, by subtext bookstores. But I always like to include a biographical detail uh, that is not in the printed bio, so I always ask our speakers for some information. Uh, actually, today I didn't, wouldn't have had to ask him because he talked about driving a steamroller over snakes and uh, watching his father and mother, stepmother, pull guns out to shoot snakes. Uh, you can ask him about that later. But the one thing he told me uh, when I asked him, give me some information about yourself that's not in your typical bio, he said, well, twice I was an All-American uh, tennis player, and he played on the national championship team for Washington and Lee. You may not have known that. Now you do. We are delighted to have you tonight. Will you help me welcome Christian Wyman? Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you for the, having me here in the Faith and Life series. It's a distinguished company to be in. I was looking at the list of some of the other speakers. You have, I think, some poems with you. Uh, this is not among those poems. All right? So just listen. Uh, some of the poems you have in front of you, I thought it might help. Some people don't like to have the poems in front of them, so you can just put them to the side and just listen. But I will tell you clearly when I come to one that you have. This one you don't. It's called The City Limits. When you consider the radiance, that it does not withhold itself, but pours its abundance without selection into every nook or cranny, not overhung or hidden. When you consider that birds' bones make no awful noise against the light, but lie low in the light, as in a high testimony, when you consider the radiance, that it will look into the guiltiest swervings of the weaving heart and bear itself upon them, not flinching into disguise or darkening. 
When you consider the abundance of such resource as illuminates the glow-blue bodies and gold-skinned wings of flies swarming the dumped guts of the natural slaughter or the coil of scat, and in no way winces from its storms of generosity when you consider that air or shale, snow or vacuum, squid or wolf, rose, or lichen, each is accepted into as much light as it will take. Then the heart moves roomier, the man stands and looks about, the leaf does not increase itself above the grass, and the dark work of the deepest cell is of a tune with may bushes and fear, lit by the breath of such, calmly turns to praise and fear, lit by the breath of such, calmly turns to praise. It's a poem by the late, great American poet A.R. Ammons, raised in North Carolina, lived a lot of his life in, in Ithaca and Cornell. I begin with it for several reasons. The first is to encourage you to memorize poems. You snicker, but I promise, I promise it can come in great value uh, I'm a big believer in memorization. I have all my students do it uh, in my classes, um, grad students, undergrads, all of them. Uh, and they're always very appreciative. I, I also go around the country a lot talking to people about poetry. And recently I, uh, I got a letter from somebody who said that he had heard me uh, recite a poem, not that one, a different one, and, and uh, his wife had just died. And he had begun, found himself beginning to memorize poems after my talk, and that it had been a way for him to deal with that grief, to fix his experience in a way, to give his mind some sort of stability in what was a time of great chaos. And poetry has always seemed to me to have that power, and so I would urge you, no matter your age, no matter if you think you can't do it, try to memorize some poems. The second reason that I began is simply to foreground a poem, I'm not going to talk a lot about poem or use a lot of poems in this, in this talk, but I want to foreground a poem. Uh, and the third reason is because, although that sounds like a Christian poem, when you consider the radiant, sounds like it could be almost an incarnational poem. Uh, in fact, A.R. Ammons had no religious belief at all, and he could actually be especially caustic about its Christian, any Christian manifestations of belief. I'm going to talk some about being on the ragged edge of faith, which is often where I find myself. And I find it heartening and helpful to have these testaments to a kind of faith that exists entirely outside of belief. I'll drop some other poems in, and some I'll explain, and some I won't. 20 years ago or so, I was watching this TV show. It was in Buffalo, New York. I remember it very clearly, and it was about depression and religion. And I don't remember the exact relationship, but apparently there was one. <laughs> and a friend who was entirely secular asked me with some genuine curiosity and concern because she knew that I came out of a very religious environment in West Texas, though I wasn't religious then. She said, why do they believe in something that doesn't make them happy? Well, I considered myself a bit of an atheist at that point, though I was beset with 
formless loneliness and endless anxieties. I was contemptuous of Christianity, in fact, but I was apparently addicted to its aspirations and its art. I was also already chained fast to the rock of poetry, having my liver pecked out by the bird of a harrowing and apparently absurd ambition. And thus I had some sense of what to say. You don't follow God in hope of happiness, but because you sense a truth that renders ordinary contentment irrelevant. There are some hungers that only an endless commitment to emptiness can feed, and the only true antidote to the plague of modern despair is an absolute and maybe even annihilating awe. I asked for wonders instead of happiness, Lord, says the great Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel, and you gave them to me. I asked for wonders instead of happiness, and you gave them to me. I thought of this moment a couple of years ago when one of my, I have twin daughters, they're six now at the time that this occurred to me, they were four, and one of them, Eliza, walked wide-eyed and trembly into my room late at night. My wife was traveling. The girls are used to me being gone, and they've learned to allay their anxiety somewhat with the prospect of airport presence or what, what have you. I will be scrambling in the morning to find something. But they are less sanguine about the absence of their mother. So I thought things were going pretty well. There had been a heated territorial dispute at the kiddie pool, and then a principled aesthetic disagreement over the length of my hair and a chalk drawing, which one of them had decided with a bite. But dinner was lively. The ice cream bribery was effective. And after story time and poem time and I love you time and all of the stalling tactics that little kids are so good at, I stepped out of their room without a fuss. About an hour later, though, I look up and there is my blonde-haired, blue-eyed, scarily intelligent sprite of a child, Eliza, standing in the doorway. She taught herself to read when she was three, by the way. She's freakish. Daddy, she said, I can't sleep. Every time I close my eyes, I'm seeing terrible things. Well, I've been a lifelong insomniac. Last night, as a matter of fact. But I used to freak out my own parents when I would sneak into their room in the middle of the night and, so the story goes, try to open up their eyelids to see what they were dreaming. <laughs> in fact, I began this very talk between two and four one morning when my thoughts were all a case of knives, as one of my favorite poets, George Herbert, has it. So I was sympathetic to my daughter's plight. I suggested she pray to God. Now, this was either a moment of great grace or brazen hypocrisy. Not that the two can't sometimes coincide. As I am not a great prayer myself, and tend to be either undermined by irony or overwhelmed by my own chaotic consciousness. Nevertheless, I suggested that my little girl get down on her knees and bow her head and ask God to give her good thoughts. Like maybe the old family house in Tennessee that we'd gone to just a couple of weeks earlier, for example, the huge green yard with its warlock willows and mystery thickets, the river with its Pleistocene snapping turtles and the water-beaded cattle, the buckets of just-picked blueberries and the fried Krispy Kremes, yeah, fried Krispy Kremes, 
and the fireflies smearing their strange radiance to the humid Tennessee twilight. I told her to try to hold that image in her head and ask God to preserve it for her. I suggested that she let the force of her longing and the fact of God's love coalesce into a form as intact and atomic as matter itself, to attend to memory with the painstaking attentiveness of the poet, the abraded patience of the saint, the visionary innocence of the child whose unwilled wonder erases any distinction between her days and her dreams. I said all this underneath my actual words, as it were, <laughs> and waited while all that blonde-haired, blue-eyed intelligence took it in. She looked up at the ceiling for a minute, and then she looked at me, and she said, Oh, I don't think so, Daddy. <laughs> and I said, What do you mean, Eliza? Why not? And she said, Well, in Tennessee, out in the yard, I asked God to turn me into a unicorn, and look how that's worked out. <laughs> Prayer. For all the pain passed down the genes are latent in the very grain of being. For the lordless mornings, the smear of spirit, words into it and inter. For all the nightfall neverness inking into me, even now, my prayer is that a mind blurred by anxiety or despair might find here a trace of peace to pray. What exactly does that mean to you, to pray? And is it something we ought to even be teaching children to do? And if you assume for a moment that it is indeed something that you can learn, an essential thing to learn, then what exactly ought you to pray for? A parking space? to be cured of some dread disease, for the emotional and spiritual well-being of a beloved child, to be a unicorn for one blessed hour of sleep, maybe? The Polish poet Anna Kamienska died in 1986. She was 66 years old. She had converted to Christianity decades earlier in her 30s after the unexpected death of her beloved husband, who was himself a poet. People who have been away from God tend to come back by one of two ways, destitution or abundance, an overmastering sorrow or a strangely disabling joy. Either the world is not enough for the hole that has opened in you, or it is too much. The two impulses are intimately related, and it may be that the most authentic spiritual existence in here is in being able to perceive one state when you are standing squarely in the other. The mortal sorrow that shadows even the most intense joy, the immortal joy that can give even the darkest sorrow a fugitive gleam. Anna Kamienska a devoted and tormented Catholic, her faith brought her great comfort and great anguish, often at the same time. I suspect this is precisely the quality that attracted me to her when I first came across a couple of passages from her diaries. When I was high in the air above downtown Chicago and Northwestern Memorial Hospital, 
blood in my tubes and blades in my veins. I had and have a mysterious blood cancer. I have been living with it, dying with it, for so long now that it bores me or baffles me or drives me into the furthest crannies of literature and theology in search of something that will both speak and spare my own pain. Were it not for my daughters, I think by this point I would be at peace with any outcome, which is I have come to believe one reason, just one reason, not the reason or even the main reason why they are here. Not long before her death, Anna Kamienska wrote what I think is her best poem, available in English. There's not that much of her that's available in English. You have it. It's a stark, haunting, insidiously hopeful little gem called A Prayer That Will Be Answered. That title is worth some stress. A Prayer That Will Be Answered. What do you pray for? Lord, let me suffer much and then die. Let me walk through silence and leave nothing behind, not even fear. Make the world continue. Let the ocean kiss the sand just as before. Let the grass stay green so that the frogs can hide in it, so that someone can bury his face in it and sob out his love. Make the day rise brightly as if there were no more pain, and let my poems stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. Now this is an uncanny poem. It gives God all power, the continuance of the world, and no power. It was going to continue anyway. It is implicitly apophatic, you might say, to use a fancy word that one hears a lot at places like Yale Divinity School. It calls into existence that which it erases, or it erases what it asserts in this instance. It is a prayer to be reconciled to a world in which prayer does not work. Lord, let me suffer much and then die. Well, that would probably happen. Oh, Lord, let me not love thee if I love thee not, wrote George Herbert at the end of one of his greatest poems. Let me not love thee if I love thee not. We pray God to be free of God, says Meister Eckhart in the 13th century. We pray God to be free of God. To be so close to God that we don't need that word God. Behind Kamienska's poem, infusing it with an ancient and awful power is the most wonderful and terrible prayer that one can pray. Not my will, Lord, but yours. That, of course, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the Roman soldiers come to take him to his death, just after he has sweated blood, begged God to let this cup of suffering pass from him and wept to leave the world that he so utterly, and it seems helplessly, loves. And then, not my will, Lord, but yours. Now, it's hard enough to pray a prayer like this when you're thinking of making some big life decision. It's damn near impossible when your actual life is on the line or the life of someone that you love, when all you want to pray is help, help, help. Not my will, Lord, but yours. Kamienska's poem is uncanny in another way, too, and it's triumphant. 
If you want me again, writes Walt Whitman near the end of his great poem, Song of Myself, look for me under your boot soles. This poem has a similar ghosting effect. It gives its author a kind of posthumous presence. Let my poem stand clear as a window pane, bumped by a bumblebee's head. This is not quite like what has gone before. Lord, let me suffer much and then die. Let my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. That's a genuine supernatural request. And the weird thing is, it's happened. This poem is about as clear a poem as you're ever going to read. It is clear as a window pane. And we, the readers, all these decades after Kamiensk's death, are bumping our heads upon it. The prayer's been answered. And to feel the full effect of this poem is to feel a little ripple of spirit going right back through the stark material reality to which she sought to be reconciled. This is Carol Ann Duffy. A poem called Prayer. It ends with, it's a sonnet, very short. It ends with, it's not it, you don't have it, sorry. It ends with uh, place names. In England, on the radio, sometimes they'll give the, the names of the, the cities when they're, when they're giving the weather. So it'll just be a list of names. That's what it ends with. Some days, although we cannot pray, a prayer utters itself. So a woman will lift her head from the sieve of her hands and stare at the minims sung by a tree a sudden gift. Some nights, although we are faithless, the truth enters our hearts, that small, familiar pain. Then a man will stand stock still, hearing his youth in the distant Latin chanting of a train. Pray for us now. Grade one piano scales console the lodger looking out across the Midlands town. Then dusk, and someone calls a child's name as though they named their loss. Darkness outside. Inside the radio's prayer. Ruckall, Mallon, Dogger, Finisterre. For a long time, I tried to write this poem that had as its first line, Are you only my childhood? By childhood, I meant not only the encompassing bubble of Baptist religiosity in which I was raised in far west Texas, but also that universally animate energy, that primal permeability of mind and matter that children both intuit and inhabit that clear and endlessly creative existence that a word like faith only seems to stain. By you, I meant you, Yahweh. Are you only my childhood? I took dozens of different tacks for the poem, but it was all will and thus all wasted. Years passed, and I just had that one line. Do I only turned to God because I was introduced to him as a child. Is that all you are, God? An echo. 
And then, not so long ago, in a half-dreaming state in the middle of the night, when I was once again unable to write poetry, and, and also back in the throes of illness, I heard myself ask the question again, are you only my childhood? And from deep within the dream, a voice, it was me, but the voice was not mine said with what seemed to be genuine interest and puzzlement, why do you say only? Ah, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love, yet strike. Cast down, yet help afford. Sure, I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise. I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. George Herbert, again, a contemporary of Shakespeare's. It's very likely he wrote that poem, which is called Bittersweet, between the ages of 37 and 40, when he had just swerved from a disappointing political career into parish ministry, was newly and very happily married, and quite obviously dying of tuberculosis. All my sour sweet days I will lament and love. Destitution and abundance, submission to God and aggression against God. What might it mean to pray an honest prayer? Well, maybe it means, like Meister Eckhart, praying to be free of the need for prayer. Maybe it means, like Anna Kamienska, praying to be fit for, worthy of, capable of living up to the only reality that we know, which is this physical world around us, the severest of whose terms is death. Maybe, just maybe, it means resisting, like Anna Kamienska, Resisting this constriction with the little ripple of spirit that cries otherwise, as all art, even the most apparently despairing, ultimately does. Maybe it even means that you pray for a parking spot in the faith that there is no permutation of reality too minute or trivial for God to be altogether absent from it. If Jesus' first miracle can be a kind of pointless party trick, he turns water into wine. Voila! Maybe the lesson that Christians are meant to learn from this is that we have to turn everything over to God, including those niggling feelings and hesitations we have at the whole rigmarole of sifting Scripture like birds' entrails and bowing one suddenly brainless head and believing in something more than matter. This is all just a little ridiculous, isn't it? An embarrassment, even. The province, perhaps, of little children. I can't tell a story of one daughter without including one of the other. Fiona, then. The olive-skinned a night-eyed child, the lies and little trickster sister, Fiona. When our girls were just two years old, we spent a summer in Seattle, where I had lived many years earlier. 
It was the first break that I had managed to take from my editing job. I was working as an editor in Chicago. First break I'd managed to take in a decade. And it was eight months after I had undergone an arduous bone marrow transplant. Bone marrow transplants are always arduous, but this was tough. Time had a texture that summer, an hourly reality that we could taste and see. The girls went to a wonderful little daycare in the morning so my wife and I could write. And then we would all come together in the afternoons to do something fun in Seattle. We had the same nightly ritual that we do now. I'd read to the girls and I would tuck them in before my wife took over. And the last thing that I would say every night was, I love you. And they would always reply promptly, I love you too, Daddy. And then my wife would take over. But then one night, after my declaration, little Fiona was silent. She just kept staring at the ceiling. Do you love me too, Fiona? I asked foolishly. A long moment passed. No, Daddy, I don't, she said finally. Oh, Fiona, sweetie, I bet you do. And I said again. Nothing. Well, I said finally, I love you, Finn, and I'll see you in the morning. And then as I started to get up, I felt her small hand on my arm, and she said dreamily, without looking at me, like a tiny little Lauren Bacall, I will love you in the summertime, Daddy. I will love you in the summertime. (laughs) Now, I have told this, to a couple of people who thought it was heartbreaking, but I was actually so proud I thought my heart would burst. (laughs) I will love you in the summertime. What a piercing, poetic thing to say at two years old. And for weeks, I thought about it. I couldn't forget it. A year later, just after that dream that I told you about, I wrote a poem about it, the first poem that I had written in a year. I will love you in the summertime. Which is to say, given the charmed life that we were living there in Seattle and all the grace and grief that my wife and I felt ourselves moving through at every second, I will love you in the time when there is time for everything, which is now and always. I will love you in the time when time is no more. Now, do I think that's what my Athena-eyed and mysteriously interior two-year-old daughter meant by that expression? No, I don't. But do I think that sometimes life and language break each other open to change, that a rupture in one can be a rapture in the other, that sometimes there are, as it were, words underneath the words, even the very word underneath the words? Yes, I do. When Jesus says that you must become as little children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, he is not suggesting that you must shuck all knowledge and revert to an innocence, or worse, a state of helpless dependence that you have lost or outgrown. The operative word in the injunction is become. The Greek word is actually strepho, which is probably more accurately translated as convert, a word that suggests an element of will and maturation. Spiritual innocence is not beyond knowledge. 
but inclusive of it. Just as it is of joy and love, despair and doubt, for the hardiest souls, even outright atheism may be an essential element. There are two atheisms, of which one is the purification of the notion of God, says Simone Weil. Let me repeat that. There are two atheisms, of which one is a purification of the notion of God, a necessary trial for some people. There is some way of ensuring that one's primary intuitions survive one's secondary self. Or to phrase it differently, ensuring that one's soul survives oneself. Or to phrase it differently, to ensure that oneself and one's soul are not terminally separate entities. To ripen into childhood. It's a beautiful phrase from Bruno Schultz. To ripen into childhood. So perhaps one doesn't teach children about God so much as help them grow into what they already know. And perhaps know is precisely the wrong verb. Trying to solve the problem of God is like trying to see your own eyeballs, said Thomas Merton. It has been my experience that most adults will either smile wryly at this and immediately agree or roll their eyes and lament the existence of this benighted intelligence benighted superstition that pretzels intelligence into these pointless knots, this zombie zeal that will not die. It has also been my experience that there are on this earth two little children who, if told this Cohen by a father inclined to linguistic experiments, will separately walk over to the mirror and declare that, in fact, Daddy, they can see their own eyes. I want only with my whole self to reach the heart of obvious truths. That's Anna Kamienska again, near the end of the fractured, intense, diamond-like diaries that circle around and around the same obsessive concern. God. I know just what she means. The trouble, though, as her own life and mine illustrate, is that just as there are simple and elegant equations that emerge only at the end of what seems like a maze of complicated mathematics, so there are truths that depend upon the very contortions they untangle. Every person has to earn the clarity of common sense, and every path to that one clearing is difficult, circuitous, and utterly painfully individual. Here's an obvious truth. I am somewhat ambivalent about religion. And not simply the institutional manifestations which even a saint could hate. But sometimes, too many times, all of it, the very meat of it, the whole goddamn shebang. Here's another. I believe that the question of faith which is ultimately separable from the question of religion, is the single most important question that any person asks in and of her own life. And that every life is an answer to this question, whether she has addressed it consciously or not. As for myself, I have not found faith to be a comfort, but a provocation to a life I never seem to live up to. An eruption of joy 
that evaporates the instant I recognize it as such, an agony of absence that assaults me like a psychic wound. As for my children, my little girls, Eliza and Fiona, I would like them to be free of whatever particular kink there is in me that turns every spiritual impulse into anguish. Failing that, I would like them to be free to make of their anguish a means of peace for themselves or others, or both, with art or action, or both. Failing that, and I suppose ultimately, here in the ceaseless machinery of implacable matter, there is only failure. I would like them to be able to pray, keeping in mind the fact that as Saint Anthony of the Desert said, a true prayer is one that you do not understand. Witness. Typically cryptic, God said three weasels slipping electric over the rocks, one current conducting them up the tree by the river in the woods of the country into which I walked away and away and away. And the moon-blued, cloud-strewn night sky like an x-ray with here a mass and there a mass and everywhere a mass. And to the tune of a two-year-old storm of atoms, elliptically, electrically alive, I will love you in the summertime, Daddy. I will love you in the summertime. Once in the West, I lay down dying to see something other than the dying stars, so singularly clear, so unassailably there. They made me reach for something other. I said, I will not bow down again to the numinous ruins. I said, I will not violate my silence with prayer. I said, Lord, Lord, in the speechless way of things that bear years and hard weather and witness. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Christian. We're going to let him rest his voice for a minute. I'll make a couple of announcements here, the first of which uh, we always like to mention our next event. Uh, which is here in this sanctuary again, Thursday, March 3rd, featuring Catherine Collins, um, who has spent her world in the world of finance uh, and has established an uh, uh, organization that has taken some cues from the natural world to help her advise people. It promises to be a fascinating talk. I've had some really interesting conversations with her by phone. So please join us for that if you would like us to remind you about that event and other events. You can sign up uh, to like us on Facebook. You can go to our website and give us your email address, or you can use this form uh, to leave your email address with us. We send out two or three reminders of each event by email 
in advance of those events. You can also uh, use this form to make suggestions for future speakers. Uh, we're actually in the process right now of planning next year's uh, season, so if you have ideas, um, this would be a good time to get them in. And then, as always, I like to say thank you uh, to the people and organizations that make this series possible. Um, this is, from the beginning, the series has been funded 100% by generous donors. Uh, they are listed uh, on page three of your program. Um, I will lift up uh, briefly uh, our sponsors, uh, Cressa. Thanks to them, they've been a wonderful partner for a number of years. Thrivent Financial, uh, Community Crossroads, Sparky Abrasives, Rapid Packaging, Mastercraft Labels, Productivity Inc., uh, Fuzzy Duck uh, Design, uh, McLaurin CSF, uh, Luther Seminary, and then uh, Mount Olivet and St. Philip the Deacon, uh, as well as all of the individuals who are listed here, and I will not read all of those names. Um, you would not be able to hear wonderful speakers like Christian without uh, these people's support, and many of them are with us tonight. Would you please give them your thanks? <laughs> now we'll take a few minutes for questions, if you have any. So, Christian, if I could invite you back up here to respond, <coughs> that would be great. Yeah, I guess I'll just point to people. Well, or it would be helpful if you could go up uh, to the microphone. Uh, there, um, you can, I can repeat the question if you, if you take it. So. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, the, the question, we must learn to live in unknowingness without being proud about it. I don't know exactly how I phrased it, but that I recognize the sentiment. Um, I think that that's one form of spiritual pride, is, the, is that um, um, a kind of sophisticated unknowingness, a, a, a complacent ascent to mystery at every turn, rather than ever causing yourself to wrestle with dogma or doctrine or perhaps something that God is asking you to do very concretely. Um, and I, in my own life, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to mystics in all kinds of weird ways to God. Poets, artists, and that's what I'm drawn to. Um, but there's a danger in that, in that every person can end up creating their own kind of revelation and you don't have anything that binds people together. Anna Komienska, when she converted to Catholicism, she became convinced that she needed to reimagine all of the language of Christianity in the same way that a poet reimagines all language, or language is constantly having to be remade. Uh, and so she thought she needed to remake words like grace, and sin, and redemption, and forgiveness. And then she realized eventually, after wrestling with this for a while, that these word vessels, as she called them, were so saturated with human meaning and sorrow and joy that for her to come in and, and ascribe different meanings to them would be, as she says, the act of a heedless parvenu. The act of a heedless parvenu. Someone late on the scene. Uh, and so I think there's some necessary tension there between dogma, doctrine, and complete mystery. 
Anybody else? I can repeat them if you want, but that's fine. Go to the microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got a question, too, and that is, um, when you are just sitting quietly by yourself, how is your mind working? <laughs> no. It's just no. genius, man. It's a sheer bloody genius. <laughs> the question, when I'm just sitting quietly, how's my mind working? It's probably exactly like yours. Like, like what's on my email? What am I going to have for dinner? What? wonder what my wife's saying right now. I mean, it, it's been my, I think, uh, implicit in the question is, is being a poet different than other people? It's not. Uh, it's been my experience that sometimes you're a poet and the rest of the time you're not. And you don't really understand um, where the poems come from. I still, I feel completely baffled, more baffled by poetry at this age than I did when I was 20 years old. More confused about where it comes from, less proud of what I've done. Like it seems to me, I look at it and I think, where did that come from? I don't know. Uh, when it comes, it comes in a way that I'm, I'm disabled by. But when I'm just sitting here, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about football scores, and just like you. <laughs> okay. I heard you speak on On Being with uh -huh. Krista Tippett. And I was really captivated when you talked about your grandmother. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit about how she affected your spirituality. I guess it resonated for me as maybe a little more universal, mm -hmm. that we kind of have that person in our life that might embody some of God's qualities and teach us about God. So if you could, anything you want to share on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was very close to my grandmother growing up, but I became even closer to her in my 20s when... My life really, I mean, hit bottom by any objective standard, and I found myself living in a 20-foot uh, trailer in her backyard in Colorado City, Texas. It's far west Texas, tiny little town, miserable. Uh, and I'd been, in, I'd been living in Prague. I'd been all over the place. I'd worked in New York, and, and, uh, but I was trying to be a poet and, and not succeeding. So I ended up, I didn't have any money, I ended up there, didn't know where to go. And she lived there with my aunt, Sissy, who I've also written about, and with her sister. And they were just watching TV all day. And, and I would go over there and not really know how to engage them, because we couldn't do engage in the way that we had when I was a little kid. And, at some point, I began asking them questions about their lives as just a way of making conversation. And that became, eventually they turned off the TV. That became these stories they told. It became my whole first book. Um, I, didn't, wasn't, wasn't, I had no ulterior purpose. I just became interested in their stories and interested in how they elicited stories from each other. One story would lead to another. And, uh, and so I became very close to my grandmother in those years in an, an adult way, a different way. Uh, she, we think of, I always think of consciousness as being some, an apprehensive quality in that you take, it's taking hold of something. Both meanings of that word, I guess, but you're apprehending something. It's, it's, there's an element of agency. And I've met a couple of people in my life, only a couple, but she was one who seemed to me completely conscious without 
quite that element of agency. That is, she was completely conscious in, the, in her way of being in the world, uh, without, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, as Keats puts it in a different, different context. Um, and it's hard for me to explain other than uh, it, it, the world seemed to move through her and not to snag in her in the way that it does in most people, where you can sort of feel their, uh, you get to know them a little bit, and you can feel their, where, where the world is caught and raveled in different places. Well, we've all got it. Um, and she became a kind of model for me and a model for creating a voice in poetry. Her voice was the voice of my first book, most of it. And it's not, it's, it's actually a failed poem, but it's long. Um, uh, but it has its moments, but, but it was a necessary thing. But it, it taught me, it taught me a tone, a tone that was uh, coextensive with faith, although I couldn't have articulated that in any way at the time. You ask, in a way, what I'm thinking about, which is, I, th I think, another thing behind the question is where do poems come from? They come from sound. They, they come from uh, those words just beginning to, to, to make a sound that I don't understand, or even a sound that's even before, even before words, that I'll sometimes hear the rhythm of a poem before there's any words. And the, and the sound will go out in search of the words. It's very mysterious and powerful. It is bound up, I am convinced, with something about her existence, something about the existence of the people that I grew up with in West Texas and the life of that place, the life of that landscape, which I love and hate. Like poetry. God. Yeah. So I have two questions, and one is more um, in-depth and one's kind of shallow. So maybe I'll ask you my more in-depth question, and then if you don't want to answer my shallow question. Okay. okay. But I have two, two things mulling around in my head. Um, the first one is when you're talking about faith, and maybe it's just me listening to you, but it, um, it sounds like it's mystical and there's a lot of uncertainty about it, and maybe that's okay. Is it okay to be in a place of faith where... Uh, there's maybe not a lot of conviction about it sometimes? Or am I just off point in what you said? No, I think, I, think, I guess it, de it depends on how you define conviction. Because if you, con if you define conviction as I know what I believe, then I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confused about that most of the time. But I know that I believe, I'm pretty good about that most of the time. Uh, I mean, I... I don't know, I, I um, like I say, I'm, I feel a great ambivalence about it. I'm unable to articulate a lot of what I believe, but I have this hook in my gut that is pulling me towards God, and I can't, I can't turn away. I've tried, you know, so I, in, one, in one aspect, it's incredibly powerful and overwhelming. On another, it's just bafflement. What's the shallow part? Th was th thank you, that answers my question, thank you. Um, my shallow part is, um, okay, so I like to read a lot, but I have to confess I'm not much of a poetry reader. But you, you've sort of given us an admonition, an admonition that it's good for you to read poetry or memorize poetry, right? So, okay, so for somebody like me, like, where would I start? So I say it's good to memorize poetry. I have no idea where I would start. Where, where, where should I start? 
So that might be a shallow question, but it's... <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> that's not shallow. That's a good question. But there are, there are great anthologies out there. You know, Robert Pinsky did, a, did one about 100 poems to memorize. Um, there's a great anthology done by Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes, which is full of all these wonderful sonic poems of all periods. Um, I'm a big believer in anthologies. I'm doing one, right? I'm, I'm making an anthology about poems about faith, actually. Um, great big anthology. Um, so I, you know, I think, I don't actually think that everyone ought to read poetry. If they don't like it, don't do it. Uh, I mean, it's fine. It's not like broccoli or something. I mean, you, <laughs> but, but I think, I mean, it, you know, people get poetry all the time. I don't, I've had some ministers tell me they don't read poetry, which is borderline hilarious because... I mean, so much of the Bible is poetry. I mean, and not, it, it's, it's not sort of folk, rustic folk poetry. This is high literary poetry, a lot of the Old Testament. Um, so I think, you know, it's a common from I was talking about Osip Mandelstam. I did a book about a little selection of Osip Mandelstam's poems that I translated, and he was a famous Russian poet, and we were talking a little about poetry in different countries. This is a particular, particularly American phenomenon, um, this resistance to poetry. Uh, you can go around countries around the world, like Russia, and find people quoting it uh, all over the place. You know? Yeah. Well, this is just a follow-up question on whoever asked about your grandmother, and, and you mentioned that you didn't really know that you... You mentioned writing about your grandmother, or writing because of your grandma and the poetry, but you talked about maybe not knowing about it was faith-based at the time. When did it change? Was it, did it relate to when you were diagnosed with a disease, or, or when, did, when did you experience a change so that your writing was more faith-based and you knew it was from a greater being? Well, I was doing a selected poem. I'm publishing a selected poems this fall, and so I was reading through all of my old work to decide what goes in there. Um, <coughs> I, I stopped myself from saying something very harsh right there, but I stopped myself. Um, I didn't see a break. I didn't see this great, great rift where something happened and the work the focus of the work changed. It seemed to me that it's in the first, my concerns in the first book are the same, but the language has been broken open in different ways and that's completely changed. Nevertheless, there is a, a real rift in my life and it had to do with stopping writing poems for um, a number of years. I write about this in, in my book, the, uh, My Bright Abyss, that, um, and falling in love with my wife, uh, which, was the real impetus towards God uh, not getting sick. It was falling in love, and it was a long time. We, we started saying prayers together at night, both of us far from any, any kind of institutional religion for years, and we just found ourselves doing that. Almost, I mean, actually kind of literally without even talking about it, like it was just happening. And then once I got sick, well then we wanted a church. We wanted, we really wanted, uh, we needed form. You know, we had chaos around us and we needed form. So the, there was definitely a break and that's, that's before that 
book of poems called Every Ribbon Thing. And that, all those poems came out of that experience. I know you said that um, it's written in your book about that period of time when you were not writing poetry, and I'm just wondering how you handled that. You're so immersed in poetry in your life, and what affected, how did that come about, and how did you deal with that? Yeah, not well. Not well. Um, yeah, I won't go into a litany of difficulties, but it, but it, you know, if you've, I mean, that was my whole life, and, it, and, it, and it's, not, it's not like you do it because you want success. You do it because it's a way to breathe. I mean, it's the way that poems, an artist needs to make art in order to translate experience, and otherwise the experience just, you talk about things getting clogged in you or stuck. Um, and I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't reach the world. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to, how to be in the world. Although I was thriving in a way. I'd become editor of this magazine. I had this job. I was, things were going fine. But it wasn't good. Um, and that was a long time. And I still don't handle it well. Uh, I think because it's, poetry is a, um, it's a necessity like breathing. You know, I've tried to get away from poetry. Uh, I've tried to stop. I, I, uh, the great English poet Basil Bunting, Northumbrian poet, not that many people here know, know his work that well, but um, he used to say that his job was, at, at, when he was, the rare times he was a teacher, he was a spy actually, but the rare times that he was a teacher, he would say that uh, he thought his job was to discourage poets <laughs> because he thought it was such a difficult thing to encourage people to do in a serious way. It's, just a, it's, it's a difficult life, and, and it's partly difficult because it goes away. Basil Bunting had it go away for 30 years. He wrote his great poem when he was in his mid-60s. His great poem when he was in his, in his mid-60s. Uh, it's this long poem called Brig Flats. So yeah, I didn't handle it well. So, any other uh, questions? Okay. Um, I'm not sure I understood everything that was said either this afternoon or this evening, but um, I just have to say what a privilege it is to come to a place like this and be able to listen to someone like him. I was uh, riveted this afternoon. I thought your poetry was beautiful, so thank you so much. I'm so glad you could be with us. Uh, again, he'll be out in the narthex if you'd like to visit with him individually or purchase his books. We'll inscribe them uh, for you. But as a small token of our gratitude, Christian, we have a little plaque for you that just says, with thanks to Christian Wyman for bringing faith <coughs> to life. And we do thank you very much indeed. Thank you.